happening now. Welcome to episode 126 of the EdTech Situation Room for February the 27th, 2019. You can see that I have not done the show for a while because I think I'm supposed to say, happening now, we'd like to welcome our guests from across North America and around the world. Hopefully no one's watching this because I'm using my daughter's laptop and it looks like I've had a severe sunburn today and I am a complete fan of Oklahoma State University, which is not true. Actually, this is an EdCamp OKC shirt. So anyway, my name is Wes Fryer, and I'm joining you from Oklahoma City, where it is icy. We have had um, a sleet and sort of mist coming down and went to school today, but canceled after school activities. And so anyway, here we are still experiencing a little bit of winter. Very excited to be joined tonight by Dr. Beth Holland, and I, you're coming from Rhode Island tonight. Where, where uh, are you in the world? Yeah, no, I'm I'm coming to you from Newport, Rhode Island, where it just started snowing um, a little while ago. They're talking. We've had a really weird winter, so not a lot of snow. Um, they're talking one to three inches, which here just makes a gray slushy mess. Very good, very good. Slick commute for tomorrow morning. Now, do people there pretty much know how to handle? you know, slickness. Yeah. I would nothing, think you, I think it, you do. Yeah. Yeah. We don't. We are. I know. I grew up in Atlanta. So what we have now would have been considered a blizzard and school would have been shut down for three days, but yeah, they're absolutely. just going to say, drive careful. There may yeah. be a few places with a little delay in the morning, but. Right. Right. Well, yeah. yeah. So we, um, we don't really know how to handle that kind of stuff that well. So, all right, well, this is weird. I think my Twitter, there's all kinds of things going on. So YouTube has changed their creator studio. I didn't know how to set up a live stream. I'm using this wacko camera. Uh, and our Twitter as a guest got disconnected because normally it'll like auto tweet when we start a show. So oh. I'm, you know, this is the, this is the test of the multitask, but the, this is the tweet Cause I can't multiple multitask. So that's my audio tweet. It goes nowhere. There you go. Well, so we are going to talk about some, some ed tech news this week, but our plan was actually to talk a little bit about uh, equity, I think, and education and maybe some digital equity, yeah. but we're going to get updates because Beth has not been on the show for a while and I'm excited to hear some of her updates. Um, I'm in disguise as a sunburned Oklahoman because I have things going on in my life that I can't talk about yet, but they're very exciting. Um, so anyway, we're just, we're going to kind of impromptu this tonight, but I do have a few articles and we want to let people know that you can go to edtechsr.com slash links. And that is where you will find links and, uh, we will, we will add some links, I'm sure, for some well, topics that I've, we will. I've been reading. I'm sure I will will mention things and then find you some links later. That's right. Well, actually, I talked to a friend today at lunch who was talking about social media and sharing and things. And I was, and I'm going to write a post like why you should share your brain on Facebook um, because you know he's always reading interesting things and that you know somebody. What, how did you phrase it last time? You're, you were seeking a position where you could be paid to, to oh, think, write, and speak or think, Yeah, I wanted to be paid to read, write, think, and speak. That's right. Yeah. So I'm, hey, I'm getting warmer. I'm getting yeah. Closer. Are you? Yeah. Okay. Well, hey, give, there's, give, there's give us a, a little... whole bunch of other things that are going on right now as well. It's not quite that cut and dry, but you know, I'm getting closer. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, well, what you, what, what can you reveal? Give us so, a little update and uh, yeah, I'll give you an update. So as of January 1st, we'll start with that. Um, I started a postdoc research fellowship at the University of Rhode Island. Um, this is really cool. So I am working on a nine month fellowship as part of a grant with PBS. And so I'm working for a professor 
And what we're doing is we're collaborating with PBS on a multi-phased research study. We're looking at how the cat in the hat knows a lot about that, which is PBS's program um, based on the Dr. Seuss. How does it help preschool students start to develop positive perceptions about science and engineering? And how does it let them start to build an understanding of the nature of science? Oh, wow. And, yeah. So if you haven't seen it yet, I've been watching videos. Martin Short is the voice of the cat in the hat, which just makes your heart feel good. Um, the episodes are fantastic. They're really well researched and each one introduces a new science or engineering principle. And PBS Kids has been working with the Next Generation Science Standards and they've built out an entire science learning framework that extends really K-12. And they've got all these different, I didn't realize this, they have not just you know, you think about PBS and television and the shows, but they really embrace this idea of like, they call it multi-content media. So there's apps, there's resources online, there's web pages. Um, so just with the cat in the hat, there's an app, which is really fun. I played slide a mazoo for a long time the other day. Um, but the thing that's cool about the app with all of their apps is they really encourage kids to play with scientific concepts. And it's part, it's also part of the ready to learn program. Wow. So you start playing with the app and then it also then starts to encourage you to go play in the physical world. So they have, PBS has this whole ecosystem model where they say, okay, you've got like a kid on a tablet, but now how does it translate in the physical world, both in terms of what they do in school and how they play at home? Hmm. And so that's what we're looking at. Wow. Is how does the amount of cat in the hat affect perception? And so we're looking at, at dose, right? Like how much do kids play? Um, and then I was doing field work yesterday. We we're looking at a observation protocol to see if we have four-year-olds and then they go play with like blocks and trucks and things. Do they start using scientific and engineering language? Do they start to, you know, play with scenes and characters like they saw with cat in the hat? And it's really this idea of how does what they learn digitally transfer into physical play. Wow. So, that is amazing. Yeah. It's, how, how are you going to gather the data though? I mean, obviously when they're on the screen, you can get oh, that data. How do you gather the play data? Okay. So we've got, again, this is multi-phased. And so we're looking at a bunch of different things. So um, by the way, I'm right now figuring out how to provision 300 Kindle fire tablets, right. which is the short answer. Not easy. Um, getting there. That's what that, that, that solid state drive duplicator question was a, a week or so ago, right? Well, it's okay. We're, I'm playing right now with SD cards. Or SD cards. That's right. SD yeah. cards. Yeah. So yeah. we'll see. I've learned in, in, a lot about Android. I never knew um, as the ad hoc tech person for this project. So within, so the, the version of the app that we're using right now was created by the researchers at PBS and there's a bunch of researcher tools in it. So we can see like how long were they playing and, and, you know, what did they click on and those kinds of things. Um, and then we're working with creating a couple of different measures to take into the classroom to assess with the students. And there are existing instruments. Like there's one that's um, been around since like the thirties called the draw a scientist test, where you ask little kids to draw a scientist. And then there's these rubrics and you look at how did they draw the scientist and did they have like a very traditional perspective of maybe like a white guy in a lab coat with glasses and a beaker you know, or so a lot of times. Oh, what was that? Say, what was that Muppet that was like the? Um, what oh, was that Dr. guy? Professor Honeydew and Beaker. There you go. Yeah. Do they draw Beaker? Do they? Yeah. What, yeah. what does that mean? 
What does that look like? Well, or that's the other piece, you know, do they draw someone that looks like a monster? You know, that happens a lot with kids, like the crazy monster, like Frankenstein, right. you know, or do they have more progressive views? And in developing the program, PBS has been very conscious of perception. And so they've represented lots of different kinds of people. And so they <laughs> want children to start to understand that, you know, science and engineering isn't all like white guys in lab coats with glasses and basements. You know, anybody could be a science and science scientist and science happens everywhere. Yeah. So. Absolutely. I'm like deep into understanding the next generation science standards, which I had never read before, which are fascinating. Um, and I was doing field work with four year olds yesterday, although one turned five and was very proud to tell me like I'm five now. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. Well, so about STEM role models and all of that, um, just on a very personal note. So our youngest is a ninth grader and almost dropped out of the coding class, the a robotics class actually last year as an eighth grader. And I became much more acutely aware of the social aspects, especially for young ladies mm -hmm. when they're in a class like that, because there was one other uh, female and she didn't know her, but you know, she went ahead and gave it a shot and mm -hmm. ended up making friends and love the class and actually like won the award for eighth grade technology stuff. I mean, she, she really, she loved it and did awesome. Well, today um, they, uh, we had the parent conferences for selecting courses for next year. And she had told me, dad, I think I'm interested in computer science. And it, really it was one of her friends who recruited her. And then there's another one. So there may be three of them, mm. but that boy, that is a really tenuous thing as far as like, am I going to take this? Is there going to be another, you know, friend there? Am I just going to be with a bunch of boys? And so anyway, role models and perceptions and all that stuff is just so important. And I know on a real practical level, I think our school, and I'm sure we're, I know that we're not alone. I think we really need help um, knowing how to, uh, I don't know, I was going to say advocate appropriately, but just like, what what do we do? You know, how how do we sort of, I know, because they build the pipeline, you know, right. for STEM, but, but, but like, how does that really work? And, and I know that part of it is, you know, who's teaching. And so we have a wonderful eighth grade science teacher who does our science Olympiad. And I think she's really, you know, helped build that program because it's not just like all guys that are they're mm -hmm. teaching. We actually have all eighth, all male teachers in eighth grade, which is kind of interesting. But, um, my wife is doing stuff with our, you know, first through fourth graders with coding and micro bits and little Edison robots and, and, you know, all those kind of things help, but that is, that's pretty fascinating. And, and it's probably especially interesting to have a research framework to look at, especially some comparative stuff to, you know, what those perceptions have looked like before and how you shape those perceptions. So, yeah, we're trying to see how, and one of the things too, we've been field testing and most of the kids you say, do you know what science is? And they're looking at you like, that's a big word and I have no idea. And so one of the things that'll be interesting to see is what does happen over time since they're going from zero to something um, to see what might happen. And I mean, uh, the other piece that's interesting about the group that we're working with is within our state of Rhode Island, approximately 49% of students in public preschool receive special services. And so we're also looking at representation in terms of do students who might have either a cognitive or physical challenge associate with the potential to be a scientist and to be an engineer. Right. And so, you know, this idea of perception and how do we really help students understand that, that science is everywhere. Um, you know, one of the, we were working on, we're developing another instrument and we were looking for pictures 
so that we could do a comparison, like is science in this picture or is science in this picture? And if you think about it, it's really hard to find a picture where there's no science. <laughs> you know, there's, because yeah. if you, if you take a broad enough perspective, you know, it's, it's earth science, it's physical science, it's chemistry, it's something. And so every time we try to find a picture, it's like, gosh, where is there no science? Wow. Well, yeah, that's it's, right. The world is interdisciplinary. Where can you find no language or no math? Right. Yeah, that's right. Not... Yeah, it's it's really hard. You can't find no science. That's right. That's okay. Like, what about cooking? I'm like, no, there's science in cooking. You know? That's right. Absolutely. Well, so Peggy George is live in our chat room. Hello, Peggy. Hi, Peggy. And um, Peggy has dropped in some very helpful links, which I am moving over to our show notes. So Perfect. the PBS Kids, the Cat in the Hat website, and then mm-hmm. from the California Academy of Sciences, the Draw a Scientist activity. So you can you can check that out. Um, you know, the other one we should add, Wes, PBS has a learning media site specifically for teachers. Yeah. Oh, well, they've changed their hashtag, though, Is it or their Twitter. Are they just now PBS teachers? Do you know? Is that? I don't know. Because they used to be PBS LRN media. And I, don't think that's... I don't know. But if you put their website, when, when you type in the website, depending on your geographic location, it'll take you to your local PBS station. Yeah. So, like, mine goes to, I think, WGBH or right. WJAR, one of those. Um, but like I met some folks when I was in Austin, Texas a few weeks ago with KYRU. Okay. Um, but yeah, the learning media site is great. It's got teacher activities, lesson plans, all kinds of things. And then they have a, um, a parent site. So like for parents that are saying, you know, what kind of activity could I do with my kids? Right, right. So a couple things about that. And this is, I'm glad I just noticed. Yeah. So their, their Twitter is, is now PBS t- teachers. And okay. uh, I'll put the link in and it is just pbslearningmedia.org. So when I had gone back in the classroom in 2015, after I mm-hmm. finished my doctorate and whatever, was just, you know, did that for a couple of years, uh, I applied and became a PBS uh, digital learning innovator. And cool. um, I actually couldn't do their, their big conference. Um, but then my wife applied the year after that and she could, and that was in Philadelphia. And so, Anyway, that uh, allowed both of us to get a really good insight into the ways that they were developing a lot mm-hmm. of digital content. They were really encouraging professional development. So my wife mm-hmm. led a couple professional development sessions there. Um, at that time, I think, and I don't know how that how this has pivoted or shifted since, I mean, PBS has so much content, right? So much media, but they really weren't pushing a, you know, a create media. And even when it was mm-hmm. like there were, there had some tools for making lesson plans and things mm-hmm. like that kind of inside their, um, their environment. And then they were doing things with their videos as far as having, you know, snippets and, and trying to make those more accessible, I think, for teachers. Mm-hmm. And so we got to, well, that's how we learned about PBS Scratch Jr. And mm-hmm. actually my, my wife spoke at their national convention in Chicago. This would probably been in like 2016. Um, this was when she was teaching at Positive Tomorrow's downtown, which is a school for homeless in, in Oklahoma City. And anyway, she, you know, was integrating all kinds of, of media. We met one of the, the, um, developers of the PBS Scratch Jr. app. And so anyway, there's just so much energy and excitement. And what I really took away from that, in addition to the advocacy that PBS has for teachers and for public schools, um, is the importance of that high quality programming and just how many kids are still really, you know, spending a ton of time 
looking at television that is coming over their their you know local airwaves or whatever. That's like not the wrong technological term for that, but whatever. <laughs> That's right. um, but you know, like the the passion that they have for high quality content, and so. Anyway, I, I think that's phenomenal. And I think it's, um, it's, it's really, it's one of those resources that everybody should know about, mm-hmm. um, because of the high quality of the content. And then also because of connections. I mean, like, who doesn't know about the cat in the hat, right? Yeah. Um, or just, you know, a lot of the, the characters and things like that. So I, I'm, uh, pretty, did this come about because of, you know, just you know, university and your inquiry into um, what kinds of things would intersect with your own media interests or how did, how did this connection come about? Oh, so I actually was working part-time this fall as a research assistant for a different professor um, okay. on a study where I jumped in kind of late on that study that she had been working on for a while and was just literally doing qualitative coding of transcripts. And that one was looking at how to do a qualitative analysis of dialogue in an online space. Because one of the things they were looking at is when students are collaborating online, usually what happens is you just see the final product. And what we were doing was analyzing the conversations that led to the final product. So we could see how the process and the product connected um, using the, on the inquiry frameworks from PISA. So like we were, anyways, I was working on that just like I said, doing some coding work. And then this professor, Dr. Sweetman, who has the grant and is doing the work with PBS said, oh my gosh, I really need someone who can help me. I've got this huge project in a very tight timeline. And Dr. And by Fly the way, said, know about Kindle tab, you know, Fire tablets. Right? Oh no, that wasn't even on the list. Like this was like an added bonus. It was just, I need a researcher. And you know, I was, I was working for Dr. Quaro and she knew I was looking for work and she was like, Ooh, I have someone right here who is available and could start like tomorrow. So that was more of a lucky thing. And then, you know, my bad, my, I spend about half my time going back to my tech director role of like, okay, I need 300, you know, Kindle fire tablets. I got to deal with finding quotes and doing purchasing and figuring out how to provision them. And, sorting them out. And I did a, you know, a little knowledge management on our Google drive that had gotten a little out of control and started, Oh, I've been learning how to turn Google sheets into databases. Okay. Really through with what kind of like a MySQL or what kind of data, database? No, I, so Kate Wilson, who has done all the web work for ad tech teacher, somehow figured out working with, um, Oh God, Lainey Rowell on a totally unrelated project, like a year or so ago, how to run filters and then this like filter query line on Google Sheets. Like you have the master sheet and then you set filters up and then you run the filter lines on the other sheets and then it just starts like. How does, what what database program is this? No, it's all Google Sheets. But it's just all Google Sheets. It's all Google Sheets. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then once you get this like filter line thing going, it's amazing what you can do. So, yeah, I set one up for scheduling and now I've got another one going where I've, I'm tracking like, do we have the district site approval? Do we have the teacher permission forms? Do we have the parent forms? Where are they? And then that is feeding into new sheets. And it's like, here's my whole numbering system because there's all kinds of numbering because we don't use names because we're hiding right. individual identities. So it's all, yeah, so figuring that out, that was, you know, a few days of my life. Um, Whoa, that is so powerful. That that takes me back to, um, to, you know, the early 2000s when I was at Texas Tech. 
back in the FileMaker days for me. I mean, oh. FileMaker is still there. But, I remember FileMaker. You know, I ended up, you know, running FileMaker, connecting it to the web. <laughs> what was that called? Claris Homepage. My friend oh. Miguel will laugh. But, you know, there was a wizard in Claris Homepage yep. where you could, you know, generate um, – uh, the, some database connections, and then we bought. Oh gosh, I don't even remember what this was. Wait, Crystal reports. I remember. Uh, Crystal. I mean, we we saw actually. Well, I think we've just stopped doing those, but we we had some of those with our LMS with our our, our information system, more with uh, like our financial edge and things mm-hmm. that we've done with Blackboard in school. But um, no, just like put, well, that was oh gosh. <laughs> I don't think you can get sued for doing this stuff later, can you? We put our student teacher application online, but I think, te- yeah, teachers were putting their social security number in and I didn't have an SSL certificate. Mm. This was like in 2003. Um, but I mean, gosh, it was so powerful. And in fact, um, uh, there was, uh, I was reminded a couple weeks ago of this, uh, application because we had six uh, research assistants in the summertime. They wouldn't be assigned to specific faculty, but faculty could sign up for them. So I created a FileMaker database with a, with a web front end where the faculty could put in their name and then there would be open spaces, but they couldn't get in there and change. They couldn't erase other people's, but you know, being able to do that kind of stuff, that's one of those eras of my life where like, I wish I had those powers back and I hope that tools will sort of the bar will be lowered in terms of the complexity to be be able to do that and because man being able to web enable a database and think about the ways you want to have different variables and and, and represent information that is so powerful so oh. i have to say like i mean i have sort of a love hate with google stuff sometimes but man it is so easy right now and then to be able to like you said to lock people out that protect range and protect sheets Mm-hmm. Like within Google where you can say, okay, yeah. here's the sheet, but you can only edit this part. Sure. Yeah. On a very simple basis. I mean, we've mm-hmm. gotten better with our, our in-processing and out-processing of uh, of new faculty and staff at our school, right? Because whenever somebody gets hired, um, there are a lot of dominoes that have to fall, both, you know, in the technology department, but, you know, uh, maintenance and grounds who give keys and, you know, people who create business cards and all these different things. And so um, we've used that as far as the, the locked feature. And the difficult part was if we needed to add more, cause we just, we created different sheets and, and they would, it's very basic, but you know, just, uh, uh, you know, copying over the, the name and email information to the other, to the other sheets. But that, this is where like, you know, spreadsheet applications and I'd love to learn more about the, the database stuff. Cause oh, not to be whatever. Anyway, it is what it is. Um, <laughs> you know, geo maps and being able to take layers of data mm-hmm. and put that on now with Google, my maps. When yeah. I went to the, the Google geo Institute up in like Lewiston, Maine, um, probably in 2015 or I don't know when it was, maybe it was earlier than that. But anyway, they were showing fusion tables and just, there was somebody that was absolutely blowing people, blowing my mind, right. About the ways in which they were, you know, grabbing like real time data and stuff from Wikipedia. And then Mm -hmm. they were able to represent it on sheets and stuff like that. Like that would be an amazing workshop to go to somebody who's a, well, maybe you are that person, you know, somebody who's a wizard of being able to take Google Sheets um, and, and, and pulling that. It's like, that's like. They just um, got rid of Fusion Tables. What? Yeah, I got an email saying that my Fusion Tables were going away. That Did they have a replacement product for that or is that just. They like, said it was bye-bye. What? I know. I, I had played around with them for something. Man. I remember being really excited about Fusion Tables. 
And so I'd set up a handful. And so, you know, when they disable things, if you have some, they tell you. Mm-hmm. And I just got well, a handful I actually about didn't. It. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't played with it a ton. There was some guy from the Air Force Academy that was there who'd done a lot. Um, well, and this makes me think of like my metaphor is, you know, Harry Potter episode six when, um, when, uh, uh, Dumbledore and Harry go to this island and, and Dumbledore has to defend him and he like he's controlling all this like magical power or whatever but I mean anyway some like filtering information and data mm-hmm. and controlling it that that's the, the the mental image that I have and I was just recently actually I'm having a conversation with someone at a college which I won't disclose but um, they uh this particular college is making data analytics a required part of the freshman and sophomore experience. And, you know, talking about just, you know, the the six C's or whatever of different skills and the ways in which, you know, students need to be agile. I was like, that's, that's so important. So, you know, being able to work with data, represent it, visualize it Mm -hmm. and, and having a real fluency and comfort with that, I think is something, and we shouldn't wait till college, right? Let's, let's do that in high school. I did it with fifth graders. Like I, we, I started doing a bunch of like data visualization things with fifth graders. We did it with a geography unit. And what I really liked was we were using numbers. So like, cause we were all Appleness. Mm-hmm. And the thing I love is how easy it is for numbers to generate graphs, but they don't always make any sense. Right. But you just, you just let them make it anyways. And then they have to explain it. And then right. that gets really fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, you've got a kid where obviously the data should have been, say, a bar chart, and they've now got a scatter plot. Right. You know, so if you've come to me with your scatter plot, I'm like, wow, Wes, that is a fascinating way to, to display your data. So tell me what your graph is telling me. Exactly. You know, like, exactly. You could, and then see if you can convince everybody that you have the best graph. Yes. And okay. you know what? That's that's where the real teaching comes in, right? Mm-hmm. Because um, I've been in some classes where kids have, you know, created a bunch of different graphs, but getting students to talk about what they've represented yeah. and figure out if it's sensical or not, mm-hmm. and then think about purpose. And, and, you know, I, and I think that, I think the graphing tools in, in uh, Google Sheets maybe still need to improve a little bit. Have you played with 365 at all? Are they, are they doing, you know, like with good stuff. yeah, with like the online versions. And so I've used them some, I always end up defaulting to the desktop version, usually out of comfort. Right. Um, sure. I mean, I think it's called baby duck syndrome. You know that, right? We all get impre- imprinted with like a baby duck and his mama. And so it's, you can, it's in Wikipedia. You can look it up. Baby okay. duck syndrome. So yeah. I just, I, go back yeah. to regular, regular. But I mean, I've used it a little bit. It's funny. I actually like the online version of PowerPoint better than the desktop one because it has less buttons. Okay. Yeah. I like So for that, I like it. Um, I've used Excel mostly just desktop version. You know, I still, I'm going to come back to numbers though. When you have the option and you're working with kids, I loved working with numbers with kids and one of the things that was great about it, and this is something that none of the other programs do, but numbers gives you like a whole blank canvas and then you can have as many tables as you want on the canvas. Really? Yeah. So imagine having an infinite workspace for data display. Okay. Cause That's it'll cool. forever and you can put as many different tables on it as you want. You can have as many different graphs on it as you want. Wow. And so that having that as a blank space when I was working with kids, we used to do a really big stock market game project with our seventh and eighth graders. Uh-huh. And 
you know, down to like teaching them how to write the formulas for like, I bought, this was the unit price of the stock and I bought, you know, 300 shares and I have this, but this commission and this, you know, so we had all the formulas going. That's really abstract for, you know, a 12 year old. Right. So we used to do this make believe hardware store first. Cause like, that's really tangible and every kid got to pick a product. Okay. Right? So our hardware store sold every like lots of garden gnomes. We were way into garden gnomes. We had multiple varieties of garden gnomes and like nails. You know, <laughs> it was it was an unusual virtual hardware store. But so they would figure out, okay, well, here's the unit cost of one, and they look it up and like this, that, and the other. But then we would start pretending like we were actually having sales going on. So we could have here was my initial like inventory and then a new table for like, here's what I've got going on for sales. And then we could have another table and then they could have all their different graphs and could compare them and see everything without having to switch through tabs. Then would it be, wouldn't it be cool to have a simulation that you could readily, you know, throw into that where, yeah, you know, there'd be some iteration of sales and marketing and, you know, okay. So here's a real uh, kind of wild idea. This would be yeah. too bad enough time for Atlas, but maybe we could collaborate sometime like in a future Atlas on some kind of a session that's about, you know, just powerful, fun ways to, to, uh, you know, wield data or, and, and to oh, visualize and stuff I'm, like I'm that. I'm doing one at Atlas. Well, there you go. It's already there happening. I'll go. just come and attend. Um, That'll be great. I'll, I'll live tweet it. So I'll amplify so, it. Um, Monday morning at Atlas and part of the boot camp I'm doing set, uh, Sunday is actually tied to data. How do school leaders collect social data so that they can better identify the change agents within their organization? Oh, wow. And, so it's based off the work I did for my dissertation with social network analysis. And so we're going to talk about how do you, as a school leader, start to get a visualization of the advice seeking within your school. So who talks to who when they're looking for advice about innovation and technology? And what, where it gets really interesting is not only who talks to who, but who doesn't talk to who. And so... Oh, wow. Yeah. So the was using, it, you're familiar with Harkness, right? As far as mm -hmm. the tracking and the conversation. So that mm -hmm. kind of thing about trying to visualize a little bit more interactions that are happening so you can identify. Mm -hmm. Is it sort of like um, what do they call those kids that set the trends um, that are the influencers? Yeah. There's some other terms for that. But yeah, the, the ones who, who influence their peers. So in the literature, the way the ones I looked at it, they talk about who are your boundary crossers and who are your brokers. Hmm. And then. You can also talk about well, who are your blockers. So your boundary crossers are the people that work between divisions or between layers in an organization. So that person that works with the principal and the head of school or and a director or within a district, you might have that person that can work central office and building leaders and teachers, right? So they're spanning different boundaries. They might also be standing, spanning different schools or buildings or uh, grade levels. Right. So they're carrying these messages and they're communicating across the different levels. Your brokers are the people that actually have some level of authority where they can not only communicate policy, but if say I'm a principal and I'm acting as a broker and I say, Wes, this is a most brilliant thing ever. And we're going to do this. And you go, yeah, but, you know, I would except I'm stuck on recess duty. Right. Or. I would, but you know, I'm advising 16 kids this year and I just can't get to it. Or, but my department chair says I have to really focus on, you know, underwater basket weaving or whatever it is, right? If I'm a broker, I find a way to broker a deal. 
So I come back and I go, all right, here's the deal, Wes. This is so important and this is such a critical message to our greater purpose. I'm going to reduce your advisor load so that you can you know, make time for this or I'm going to get you off of lunch duty or you know, I'll talk to your department chair and make sure we can we can all get on the same page. And the broker makes those things happen. Um, and then your blockers are just that like they're the person where, you know, the head of school has this great idea and pushes it down. And then the next person, say it's the principal, says, yeah, that's not happening in my area. Right. And so they might communicate to the teachers by going, I know the head of school said this, but you don't really have to do it, you know, or, but you can do what you want to do and just sort of pay some lip service to it. Or it may be a little bit more subtle. Like this is something that we need to think about, right? That's someone who's starting to block. And so the workshop that I'm doing is there's a, both a quantitative and a qualitative. So there's a, a survey instrument that you can use as a leader to get a, an idea of the visualization and the maps. Of well, can, like, can, can you get an idea of people like when you interview them? Like, can a principal get an idea of where people will tend to fall in that? Yeah, because like yeah. a personality inventory. Right. So one of the things I've been working with is us. Like, I mean, I went through as a qualitative researcher and coded hours and hours and hours of interviews and focus groups and things. But based on that, have kind of built out a spreadsheet where, let's say, you over time, right, this is not like a one and done. Um, but the gist of this spreadsheet is imagine if every time you go to meet with somebody, you write down their name and you go, here was the intent of the meeting. You know, I was supposed to come in and talk about X. Okay, well, what'd you really talk about? Right? So then you would go go in afterwards and make a quick gist of, you know, this is our, you know, here's what we perceived was going to happen. Here was the reality of what happened. And then you would start taking notes of things like, well, who did the person mention? Because that tells you a lot, right? Like when someone goes, oh, well, I just always listen to, you know, Susie because she's always the smartest person. And when four or five different people start going, well, I always just listen to Susie, right? Now you've got this data that says, huh, what is it? What's Susie doing that I need to be aware of? And then basically you start going and keeping track. You know, this is really, it's not a lot of data. I mean, it'd be like you sit down for two minutes after you've talked to someone and you do a quick reflection, but then you start looking for trends. Like everybody talks to Susie or um, these four people constantly ask for a meeting and they say it's one thing, but they really want to talk about this over here. Right. There's, there's different ways that you can start to see how that plays out. And then you would compare that to the quantitative data you get from the survey going, you know, who do you talk to and how influential is that advice? And, you know, how often do you talk to those people? It makes and me wonder together. how that qualitative research is going to be impacted as like, you know, recording and, and, uh, you know, in this case, it may not be surveillance state, like where you're being mm-hmm. recorded, whatever, but like maybe you're in a study, so you're going to agree to do that. But right. you know, when that quantity of data can just become so, you know, so, uh, so much uh, larger and, mm-hmm. and, and then the ability for tools to be able to interpret those kind of things and stuff. Cause yeah, but there's lots of complexity to all that, right? As far as right. what people's I, intentions are and how you, you know, yeah, interpret I, that. I think- And I think what I learned from doing this work, you know, and again, with my dissertation, you know, I had ethics board approval and everybody, you know, could opt in or opt out. Um, What was what the survey data showed me and what I observed did not line up. 
necessarily. Okay. Sometimes it, it validated, but it was one of those things where I would say you can't just use the quantitative. Right. Or right. you'll miss the nuance of what's probably right. happening. Right. right. Well, and I mean, yeah. Yeah. Because that's where you're going to get a lot more of the whys and, and right. you know, it's going to, I think all studies are probably much more helpful when they're a mixed methods approach mm -hmm. rather than, you know, saying that I'm just going to do one or the other. We're kind of boxed yeah. into, I mean, you don't have to be, you can be mixed methods, but the time that's involved is considerably it's, more when you I know. step into well, that. I was working on a small project this fall where um, I was asked to do a survey of organizations and how do different organizations use research and, and how do they interpret it and, and where does it come from? And, and one of the things that was amazing is the over-reliance on quantitative data mm -hmm. and especially within like the Department of Ed. I mean, they only talk about randomized oh, yeah. control trials, which right. are almost silly in education sometimes because yes. they're too small in scope. Um, and yes, they're very controlled, but what classroom is very controlled? Yeah, right. Yeah. And the ways in which we try, we aspire to be as objective and as, you know, large scale and, and, and whatever as scientific trials and, mm -hmm. and, you know, pharmaceutical trials or things like right. that. But it's just a completely different world. Yeah. And I mean, that's like, um, have you read uh, Yang Zhao's book about what works may hurt side effects in education? No. Uh. Oh, Wes, it's fabulous. And um, I this I can give you the link for because the folks at Menden Upton School District in Massachusetts, um, they do this great author series with webinars. And um, they had Dr. Zhao on last spring or fall. No, I guess it was in the fall because I invited myself on because I was dying to meet him. Okay, um, cool. That's all I can say is I just yeah. invited myself to join. But his book is fascinating because he talks all about how there's this belief that we should look at education research. Like we compare it to pharmaceutical and we compare it to medical. Right. But if you look at pharmaceutical and medical, they never just look at the results. They also have to look at the side effects. Like, yes, this drug could absolutely cure your you know, acne, but it could also give you stomach ulcers, cause sudden death, seizures, and heart attack, right. right? So like, is it worth it to have this treatment if it could cause something that's so much worse? Um, I have asthma, so I always get scared by like asthma ads. They're like, you could need a bronchodilator, but it could make you die if you have an asthma attack, you know? Oh like, gosh, yeah. Well, and how important it is, I mean, we hear about fake news, but how about just my daughter ordered, and now I got to talk to her about this, some kind of mix that she's going to drink. It's some kind of health thing. It's from Australia. We don't even know where it is. I mean, like yeah. the ability that we have now to an online world and we're marketed through YouTube and through all these mm -hmm. other channels. I mean, it is so important to be able to discern, um, you know, who to trust and, and what to believe uh, because we can try to, you know, hack our bodies and, and do all kinds of things. And man, the fact that we can now, you know, reach out to this global marketplace um, can really pose some hazards for, for folks on, on multiple levels. So, wow. Okay. So I got that book. I got uh, what, what works may what hurt. Works, what yeah. hurt. And yeah. And he talks all about like lots and lots of programs that have happened in the education space, but no one ever thought about the side effects, you know, like right. reading first, reading first was hailed as one of like the great reading programs, but as a side effect, does it make kids hate to read? Good grief. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Yeah, well, the, um, tail, the tail that wags the dog. Well, hey, I want to ask you. Um, so um, 
We do have a few articles. We're, I've, we've been dropping in links. Thanks to, to Peggy for, for dropping those in. Scott Summer has been in our chat room as well. I don't know. Oh, yeah, Scott just added it to his good Goodreads. See, that one tip for that book may be changing lives. I mean, this was I was talking to my friend about sharing Facebook and, like, why to put your brain on. Like, when people are um, reading things and, and you know, in, in ideas, um, we, we can all be filters for each other, right? And so being able to find someone who says, oh, gosh, you got to read this book. You have to read yeah. this article. It's phenomenally helpful, um, which actually ties to my Atlas boot camp. So I, I did uh, late um, get a boot camp uh, approved, which I'm, I'm very excited about and thankful to Susan and, and Vinny. And so my uh, title is Filtering the Exoflood, Strategies for Media and Information Literacy. So I ran across that term, the exoflood, I think when I worked for AT&T. And it's this idea of this massive deluge of, of data that, you know, a lot of it's video, but just incredible, you know, quantities. And so, um, yeah, that's something that, that uh, I'm going to, I mean, I've, I've got some different ideas about. And I'm, I'm excited because it's a session I've never done before, but mm-hmm. I've really been thinking a lot about media literacy. And I think we, th- yeah, we talked last time we were on, I, I remember you said just like cotillion or these like, right. you know, little classes that we would have for for some kids to go to mm-hmm. to learn manners and how to formally behave but like how to succeed and thrive socially in the world you know mm-hmm. we need a similar kind of thing for media literacy um and and so anyway maybe i'll bounce some of that off of you as yeah. i put that together because i'm like very two, jazzed about it yeah so two more links you need to drop in there then okay, okay? is so lisa guernsey with new america the think tank in dc okay has been working with the Joan Gans Cooney Center, the think tank behind Sesame Street. Okay. And they run a handful of pilots. Um, they're focusing right now on librarians, but they're trying to create this notion of the role of the media mentor. Okay. And so instead of having conversations about it being like media literacy is like a thing you have to get. All right. Let's flip this for a minute and think about what do kids need in order to be able to develop that notion that we want them to have as literacy? Well, they need a guide. They need a mentor. Mm. And if you think about what great mentors do, whether it's, you know, for, you know, like I did a mentoring program with urban teens and we went backpacking, right? So what was my role as a mentor? I did a lot of listening, Mm. right? I did a lot of walking very slowly with girls and making sure that they knew I was there as a supportive adult. Mm -hmm. Um, right. So I I modeled behaviors, you know, I didn't leave my campsite a mess. I picked things up. I made sure everybody had what they needed, you know, so that mentor plays that role. So if we think about a media mentor, how does that person show, well, here's how I'm sifting through this. What did you call it? The exo wave of the exo flood, the exo flood of information. Um, here's how I can discern that this particular resource might be better than this one. Sort of that thinking aloud. Uh-huh. Here's how I connect to other right. people. Here's how I, right. you know, am updating my social media, you know, right. just to provide that mentor and guide Love that. to help kids through. So they're doing, there's some interesting work on both sites, both mm-hmm. the Cooney Center site and the New America site. Yeah, I found two articles I'm dropping in. One's called A New 21st Century Job, The Media mm-hmm. Mentor, and that's by Lisa Guernsey uh, yeah. from October 2016. And then this is a more recent article from July 2018 that she wrote called Maryland Libraries Build a Peer Coaching Program yeah. to Train Media Mentors. 
Yes. And that program, I was at the Humane Tech event that the Atlantic ran back in the fall at MIT. Really? And the one that like um, the uh, Center for Humane, the uh, Tristan Harris group um, started? He was there too, but it like it, the Atlantic was sponsoring it and okay. it was at MIT for the day. It was really cool. It was a free event. And yeah, Lisa yeah. Me- messaged me and was like, I'm going to this thing. And I thought, cool, I'll just show up. So I mean, fascinating conversations. And so Lisa was there with one of the librarians that she had been working with. Okay. And they were really talking about particularly this idea of how do we provide mentorship within the community? And so that's part of where they're looking at libraries. And I know she has some new work that she's been working on. I don't think it's been published yet. Um, but I think wow. it's an idea to definitely keep an eye on. Yeah, definitely. Well, and it, it merges well with uh, what we've been doing with digital citizenship and, you know, this out of all, you know, several years of work, like the key is to be a catalyst for a conversation. What we want is dialogue. What we want is, I mean, it's not an event. It's not like the sex talk. Okay. We had that talk. Now you're safe. Go, you know, Great. go out and, you know, meet with strangers. I, I had a moment of cognitive dissonance um, at this, con- I got to go to a, a professional development conference last wow. week at the Oak Ridge School in Arlington. And uh, it was the LLI Southwest conference. And they had a wonderful panel of students. And it was a- actually about like lingo and jargon and generational differences. They really did it well. They had done it for their staff. But anyway, um, <laughs> when this you know middle schooler who was on the panel uh, said that his parents didn't let him play games online with strangers, there was this spontaneous applause from the audience. And mm-hmm. It was like, but really, he needs to learn eventually, maybe not at eighth grade, but he's going to need to learn how to navigate strangers online Mm -hmm. in gaming formats, like maybe on Tinder eventually. Um, And I've been doing some thinking. I don't think I have this article. But anyway, uh, one of my new mantras, I think, is full full on or complete digital abstinence is not an option or no screen time abstinence. So like... Because a lot of the, the talk about, you know, media and the, the real hand wringing and just mm-hmm. angst that people feel about, oh, these kids and this screen and it's so terrible, you know, almost seems to suggest we should go back to the romantic time before the screen when life mm-hmm. was wonderful and we just all, you know, saw each other as we truly were and had these intimate moments, you know, constantly throughout the day. And I think that, yes, we need to be very aware and the, the screen's powerful and it's addictive and but you know what we need to do is to be to be intentional about it and and we don't need to tell people uh, abstain right just right. put it down and don't use it at all because that's not going to work you know in in the modern world so that idea of a mentor and it seems like a much more you know healthy approach especially if it's encouraging dialogue mm-hmm. and it's encouraging a relationship and an opportunity for because issues come up right, right. Like, how do you navigate this oh i'm i've run into such and such and yeah well and if you think about why kids need mentors, it's funny. I read a, um, I was on a Southwest flight years ago somewhere reading like the Southwest Airlines magazine. And the author had this great article about how he had this moment and he went back to his childhood summer camp and he took his kids and he's telling the whole story about taking his kids to a summer camp. And there's this comment in the article where he says he sees how his daughter ends up on a ropes course and she had been afraid to get up there at first. And then the camp counselor And the way he said it was like in the way that only a 20 something can do, right? Mm, Invents my child to get up there. And I don't know if I was a summer camp counselor for years. I don't know if you did that as well, but there is something magical about the relationship between a 20 something and a 
teenager, preteen, because you're not an, a real adult. Like you're kind of an adult, but you're not a real adult. And right. yet you can build this relationship. And so if we start thinking about, you know, how do we really tap into creating these opportunities to help kids make sense of the world around them instead of saying your world is bad or your world is wrong or your world's not as good as the one that I grew up in. Well, they, so they can't do anything about that. Right. But how do we help them and guide them and make sense of it and sit with them? And, you know, they're going to, I think of some of the conversations I've had with kids over the years and you scratch your head and go, why did you think this was a good idea? But again, in that mentoring capacity, your job is to listen, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. and then to empathize and to think about it and be like, yeah, when I was 16, that would have seemed like a good idea too. Well, having shared several different chapel talks now over the past, you know, almost four years at our school, um, I just, I think it's really hard to address screen time or digital citizenship or any of these topics without getting a lot of eye rolls and kids just, you know, firmly believing you're irrelevant because what you're, because you don't understand, you don't use it. Right. I mean, I, I do have credibility with our kids because I have a lot of Twitter followers. In fact, one of them told me in the last couple of months, I guess that Barack Obama follows me and they were, and I didn't know that. And they're like, so what do you mean you don't know that? I was like, well, that's pretty cool. I mean, I guess yeah. I retweeted him during the election or whatever, but, um, um, or maybe afterwards, because he's still, you know, being active on a lot of Great. important issues. But uh, that, that what you just said is so true, like not just putting them down and sort of holding them accountable for what we see as the ills of the modern age represented by the screen and, and engaging in a, in a healthy dialogue. That is, that is so, so needed. So that's great. Yeah. I, mean, I always go back to Dana Boyd's work with it's complicated. And she really talks about the fact that in a lot of ways, the social interactions that kids are doing today are no different than the ones that the rest of us did. It's just a matter of place and space. You know, um, I'm sure you and I had a similar childhood where like you could take off in the morning on your bicycle and get a comment, like be back by dinner. Yeah. You know, or call from somebody's house eventually. Well, here's the thing. Okay, so this session I was telling you about at the, the Laos on Learning Southwest Conference mm -hmm. was pitched as you know, understanding generations. They had music from like the 80s, maybe some 70s. It was more 80s music. They had um, things written up on the board like or posters to like, what was, you know, write down your favorite high school pastime, yeah. you know, riding your bike or we bold on Fridays sometimes yeah. uh, or dorks, um, you know, music, movies, things that you liked. So we talked a little bit and it really got the whole group, you know, kind of reminiscing a little bit, but in a very positive way, not in a real negative way. Mm -hmm. And then the kids came in and we played some games like, you know, it was stump the teen or whatever. Right. And so there were different phrases, but it was like, it led to some real dialogue and it didn't lead to the finger pointing mm -hmm. and the, um, I don't even have the right words for this, but basically the, I'm going to blame you. And I'm angry that this right. screen is here. I'm yep. mad and I'm going to take it away from you. And like the whole focus is so much on sort of adult angst and mm -hmm. power and blame. So anyway, that's, uh, anyway, that, that, those are rich conversations and I think we need to explore think, those at greater depth. So I'm going to definitely. I, I, my, my favorite, my word of last spring was, I guess in last year, and I keep, I keep coming back to it is this idea of like social psychological crisis. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, when say, adults, that, say, that, say that one more time. It's social psychological crisis. Okay. So when, as an individual, you face something that makes you question your own identity, 
Yes. You have a social psychological crisis. And so I think technology. I've been having one of those professionally at work for. Oh, there you go. So when you look at, when you look at something, so take, you know, looking at the idea of the technology or the screen time, I mean, for a lot of people, it's really threatening. It represents change. It represents newness. It represents a potential loss of expertise. Um, it represents a, a challenge of, of existing norms. Um, does it represent a challenge of identity or, I mean, how does yeah, identity I mean, play in really that? Because think about it. it depends on what you hold on to as your identity, right? Like what are the structures that you hold on to? Um, I can talk to my dad about my dad. He'll never watch anything. So, you know, he's a very conservative Southern guy. He's a lawyer. He's terrified of change. And so, yeah, he's got an iPad that he uses for, you know, email and to like check football scores or something. And he's got a, an iPhone and he uses it for email and texting, though he still doesn't understand the difference between an email and a text. And he gets very upset when my sister and I try to explain to him, like, they're not the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but for him, you know, the world is the way it should have been in, you know, 19... 19- 80 something, you know, he's upset that people don't wear suits every day to work and that, you know, the patriarchal power isn't in place. So like this technology is threatening all of that. So So, we're going to need to wrap wrap up with a geek of the week. So you can think of a geek of the week in a minute. I'll go first, but this really resonates with me and my wife and I were just talking about um, this idea. I I even registered domain. I, I lost it or whatever. Didn't renew it. And I called it like the learning cafe, but you know, where do we go to process change together? And also where do we go to um, gain new skills, especially older adults? And so like, I really think we might do this. I've, I've done these, some different sessions like iPad with Wes or some <laughs> things, but like finding we have these like wine bars and stuff where people will go paint a picture and they'll yeah. learn to do that. And you'll, yeah. you'll create this thing, but then you'll eat and you'll have some drinks. Mm-hmm. And so like finding some place and then, you know, learning, I, I don't know. I, I did, I did, I did some of these at this co-working space that we used to have um, North, North and Edmond. And then, um, but I haven't done the dinner one or the one, you know, kind of paired with wine. I don't, I don't know if it, but it just seems like it's an enduring thing, number one, to be able to get new skills and, and have questions answered, mm-hmm. kind of in a genius bar environment. Right. But then the other thing, and this is, I've gotten a sense of this as a presenter at conferences, like it's important to hopefully help people laugh and, you know, um, just, you know, enjoy. So there's like an entertainment edge mm-hmm. to that. But I think there's also a really important part of like processing change and processing change together and processing it constructively rather than just having angst and and saying, yeah, it sucks. Isn't it bad? You know, you know, having a way of, of like, here's how we can move forward. Here's how we can have dialogue. Here's how we can, you know, connect with our students and our children and, you know, use these tools to, you know, connect us, connect us more perhaps rather than, you know, distance and distract us as John Nesbitt would have said, you know, or did say years ago. So good, good stuff. Well, see, look at that. We, we didn't even really talk about any pre-planned articles and we have just, we've been here an hour. Um, I'm so excited that you're going to be at Atlas and I'm excited. I'm going to be there too, because that was up in the air. So for those that don't know, do you want to just give a shout out to Atlas and tell people why they should all come? Atlas uh, association of technology leaders for independent schools, right? Isn't that it? Yep, yeah, that's it. So their annual conference is in Dallas. April. In April? I forgot. Mid, Mid, mid-ish. 16th or 14th. Yeah. Or, 
I'll get it. No, it's later it. than that because it's part of my like ridiculous stretch. I go from Portland, Oregon to Toronto to Dallas. 14th to the 17th. 14th of, to uh, 17th. 20th. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm only there the 14th and 15th. I got to come back and go like interview preschoolers. It's important stuff. I hope I can make to one of your sessions. So you're doing a boot camp? I'm doing a boot camp Sunday and a session Monday morning, and then I have to fly home. Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to try to definitely um, come to your, come quick, to your session. Quick, I think we'll quick be... trip this year because it's in the middle of our field work schedule. Mm, yeah. So, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, very good. Cool. Um, well, this has been the EdTech Situation Room. We're going to have to do a uh, some Geeks of the Week and then probably just wrap it up. And, right. and then I think my, my roasted chicken and my uh, home-cooked green beans that I put on are, are done. So someone Excellent. just took those off of the so while I was was here. So uh, my Geek of the Week is actually another website that is not just copyright uh, friendly, but it's like totally for commercial use, no attribution required. I've been using a a website called Unsplash for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, I really like to do info picks and do them for different things. And so Unsplash is really fun. Um, But I actually joined Reddit uh, a couple weeks ago. I made the mistake of joining a group on privacy and then posting a pro pro Twitter and Facebook post, which was not good. So I was like really in the hole with all the like whatever your your um, points are that you get. But oh, shoot. I guess I have the wrong link. So this is a website called Pexels. And so somebody I I, I started to post better um, things that were not like so antithetical to the ethos of the of the group or whatever. So in like the ed tech group or something. And somebody posted this. So it's P-E-X-E-L-S, uh, Pexels. It looks like Pixels, but it's an E instead of an I. And it's the best free stock photos shared by talented photographers. And what's fascinating is, you know, um, I love Creative Commons and being able to, you know, have just millions of pictures, for instance, on Flickr that you can use and, and do all kinds of things with. But technically, you need to give that attribution. But for these kind of images, it's just like do whatever, you know, even sell it. And so I, I like having different options to share. And I will not say if I can ve- you know, verify the you know, complete safety of that uh, in a school environment. So if anybody else has tested that or can you know, speak to that um, image searches, I mean, our best solutions at school, uh, certainly at the, at the lower school, like my wife teaches third grade, is to use the Pic Collage app, you know, and to do the safe, safe search inside that. And yeah, picture searches yeah. can be fraught with challenges, as we know. But Shadow Puppet EDU is another one with a very good early that's right. childhood safe search. Com- coming to us from our wonderful friends at Seesaw. So that's yeah. their, that's our first app. All right. Do you have a, a geek of the week to share? Yeah, sure. I'll add a geek of the week plus my other new identity, and it's all going to tie together. So um, we didn't talk about this, which was funny because it was our initial intent. Is on oh gosh, week. yeah. It's okay. Um, I'm. Um, also started as the Digital Equity Project Director at COSIN, the Consortium of School Networking. Um, Susan Bearden is now the Chief Innovation Officer, so I'm picking up where she left off, and she you know, really did a great job. But COSIN is putting out some really amazing reports right now, and so they have a new K-12 Innovation Report series that's coming out. The first one has already been launched. Um, they just released a new donors choose toolkit for school districts and teachers. Okay. So how can you as a district help your teachers create, um, put together opportunities with donors to choose in a more like systemic way for getting funding. And then, you know, I'm working, there's already a digital equity toolkit. I'm actually working on starting to build uh, new ideas and resources for like a 2020 relaunch, but 
I, I think the Kosin website's like underappreciated sometimes. There's some really amazing resources that are that are up there and available. Well, why don't we do this? Because we didn't really, uh, yeah, have a, a bunch of links and articles. So why don't we find another time that would work with your schedule? And let's, uh, we'll get some more articles and things like that to, yeah. to read in advance. Because I would love to do a session, you know, focused on digital equity and, and to, to get into that. Because yeah. you are a fascinating person that is well read and into all kinds of really important topics that yeah. I'm sure are going to broaden and expand the minds of of just the many, you know, the six, the six listeners that we have. No, there's more than that. But. Hey, that's like four more than I get. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Beth, when you are not here on the EdTech Situation Room, where can people find you? How can they follow you and learn more of your wonderful uh, uh, thoughts? I, I am BR Holland everywhere. So I am brholland.com. I am BR Holland on Twitter. I'm BR Holland on LinkedIn. Um, and you can email me at Beth at brholland.com. All right. Awesome. Oh, I am that W. Easy. That's easy. I am W. Fryer, most places, and I am speedofcreativity.org. And my family is giving me some eyes. They are ready to eat. Go so this there. has been the EdTech Situation Room. Uh, Jason Neifer has been on assignment. In fact, the uh, I think this is the week, right? Or maybe it's next week. The NCCE conference is happening up in Seattle. Okay. And so he's doing all kinds of, of awesome things there. And I expect him to be back. But Beth and I will will talk and see what might work out for another session. So if you came here for digital equity, immediately go to the Cozen Digital Equity site, uh, cozen.org slash digital equity. We'll include that and the other show notes that we discussed tonight. If you have any feedback, please reach out to Beth or I on Twitter. You can use uh, the EdTechSR channel or the hashtag EdTechSR. And if you've got suggestions for articles, themes, uh, or if you'd like to even come on the show, you know, it, uh, this, this isn't a, a super exclusive group. We'd love to find out some other folks that want to talk news. And generally, you know, that is a lot of, of what we're talking about, uh, is news. But thank you so much, Beth. And we wish you well with your continued studies. And I can't wait to get to see you in person. April will be here before we know it. So exactly. time is going by quickly. Well, Wes, thanks so much for having me. All right. All right. Good night. Night.